0: Okay, we are now studying the Satipatthana Sutta. And we've been investigating the section of the Sutta, the fourth section, which is called the section on Dhammanupassana, the contemplation of phenomena. And just to review very briefly We saw that this section begins with the contemplation of phenomena as the five hindrances. The five hindrances are the mental factors, which are the main obstructions to the progress of meditation. And in the system of Satipatthana practice, The five hindrances are not regarded simply as obstacles to be pushed aside, but rather by turning these five hindrances into objects of contemplation, objects of awareness, the meditator is able to overcome them to sort of gradually to weaken their grip on the mind and to turn them into simple phenomena which reveal the characteristics of all phenomena. And so by mentally noting the five hindrances whenever they arise, and by investigating their conditional structure, how they arise through certain conditions and how they can be eliminated by the application of certain other conditions, one comes to some understanding of the nature of phenomena. Then as the five hindrances subside we enter into the second section of this division, which is the contemplation of the five aggregates of clinging. That is when the mind comes into a space of clarity where it's free from the grip of the five hindrances, then we investigate this personality that we call I or mine, in order to see what makes it up, what it's constituted out of. And then we see that it is made up out of these five aggregates, the factors of material form, feeling, perception, various mental formations and consciousness. Then the third section of this part of the sutta gives us a different way of analyzing experience. Instead of analyzing it in terms of the five aggregates, one investigates it in terms of what are called the internal and external sense bases. That is, we have an object, that which is known, We have a sense base, which is the faculty through which we know the object. And then there is the consciousness, which arises in dependence upon the object and the sense faculty. Okay, now as the process of contemplation gathers strength and momentum we come to a phase where certain mental factors become especially strong. And these are the mental factors which will lead directly to the attainment of awakening or enlightenment. And the Buddha has selected seven of these mental factors, the most important ones, and he gives them the collective designation of the seven factors of enlightenment in Pali, the Sapta Yeah. You know, the Pali word bojanga is a compound of the two words bodhi plus anga. When these two get joined together, then the D of bodhi gets turned into J's and they get linked together as bojanga. So these are seven mental factors which are especially conducive to the attainment of awakening or enlightenment. And these are also the seven mental factors which are present in maximum strength when the attainment of enlightenment takes place. So we should see that these seven mental factors begin to unfold, one giving rise to another, and yet when the later ones arise, it doesn't mean that the earlier ones disappear, but rather as each one arises, the earlier ones are also preserved and continue. And so when all seven come together, then they become an invincible force which will lead directly to the attainment of the awakening to the Four Noble Truths. (coughs) Now these seven factors also appear in the earlier stages of practice, of meditation practice. And from time to time, one or another of these factors will come to prominence. Of course, for there to be any meditation practice at all, there has to be mindfulness, there has to be some, for there to be any insight meditation, there has to be some investigation, energy, and so on. But in the earlier stages, these qualities of mind are not yet called Bojangas, not yet called enlightenment factors. They become enlightenment factors when a special stage of insight is reached. The stage which is called, technically, it's called the knowledge, of the rise and fall of phenomena, Udayabhaya-nyana. So when the meditator is examining phenomena as they're arising and passing away, then all of these seven factors become linked together and gather momentum. Momentum which will lead to deeper and deeper insights and eventually to the awakening or realization of the ultimate truth. And the first of the seven factors of enlightenment is mindfulness. That is because in the practice of Vipassana or Insight Meditation, mindfulness is the essential foundation. It's the base upon which the whole process of developing insight arises. Mindfulness in this context means the you can say the bear attention to the phenomena of mind and matter that present themselves to awareness it's attention which it's a, a way of attending to phenomena simply as they present themselves without embellishing them without any but through any kind of mental commentary without elaborating upon them with thoughts and ideas, but just simple observation, the making present of the phenomena of mind and matter. (coughs) And usually, in our ordinary frame of mind, our frame of thinking, we don't attend simply to phenomena as they're presenting themselves. But some object calls or awakens our attention and as soon as we turn our attention to it, as soon as we perceive it, immediately that perception triggers off a series of thoughts by which we start elaborating upon the object, building around it a network of thoughts and mental constructions, most of which are governed by desire, greed or attachment, what we like about the object, imagining how we can derive more enjoyment from it building up around things that we like, also thoughts of fear and anxiety of losing that object. Then also, in regard to things that we dislike, we build a web of thoughts concerned with the disagreeable aspects of that object. (coughs) perceiving that object in terms of its negative qualities and then reinforcing our aversion, our dislike, our anxieties about the object. And in this way, we do not really perceive and know the object as it truly is, but rather we see things through a whole elaborate net Of thought constructions which inevitably distort the objects. And so in order to understand things as they truly are, the first step in that process is to cut away all of these mental elaborations, all of this mental commentary, simply by attending to the bare object that presents itself. And the instrument or the mental tool which is able to cut through all of these thought constructions and bring the object to the mind in its immediate simplicity, in its true actuality, is sati, mindfulness. And it's said that mindfulness has the characteristic of non-superficiality. That is, mindfulness goes deeply, penetrates deeply into the nature of the object. In itself, mindfulness is extremely simple function. It just means attending to the object just as it is, without building up any commentary on it. So, for example, if one is doing anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, then one is just observing the breath as it occurs. In, out, in, out. Whenever the mind is straying, wandering, thinking, then just becoming aware of the wandering mind, straying mind, thinking mind, then bringing the mind back to the breathing in, out, in, out. If one is observing the rising and falling of the abdomen, then one is just attending to these sensations of rising, falling, rising, falling. Just being mindful of them. But this very simple, very, very basic factor of mindfulness, by bringing the object directly into view, penetrates deeply into the nature of that object. In the commentaries, they compare compare our ordinary way of thinking about objects is like the shell of a pumpkin. If one takes the shell of a pumpkin and puts it on the surface of a pool of water, then what happens to the shell? What does it do? It floats. It just remains on the surface of the water. So that is our ordinary way of dealing with things, dealing in terms of our thoughts, our imaginations, our desires and diversion. It just floats, the mind just floats superficially on the outside of the object. But if one takes a heavy stone and puts it on the water, what does it do? It sinks right down to the bottom of the pond. So it said that mindfulness has that quality like the stone, that it sinks deeply into the nature of the object. And so the basic task of mindfulness is to keep the object in view and in the practice of satipatthana meditation whatever object presents itself to the mind can be taken as an object of mindfulness simply by attending to that object as it presents itself in its simplicity and in its immediacy. So as one goes on contemplating the object with mindfulness, then on successive occasions the mind comes repeatedly face to face with its object. And so mindfulness develops strength through the repeated effort to develop mindfulness. When one begins practicing mindfulness, then the mind constantly is slipping away, always running away and becoming lost in the labyrinths of thoughts and ideas but by repeatedly making the effort simply to attend to whatever is presenting itself, one moment of mindfulness conditions the next moment of mindfulness so that mindfulness will develop a momentum till it can continue unbroken for long periods of time. Okay, now, coming to the sutta, the Buddha says, first he introduces the passage by saying that, further monks, a monk lives contemplating mental objects and the mental objects in regard to the seven factors of enlightenment. And how, monks, does a monk live contemplating mental objects and the mental objects in regard to the seven factors of enlightenment. Herein, monks, when the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present, the monk knows the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in me. Or when the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is absent, he knows the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is not present in me. And he knows how the arising of the non-arisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to be, and how perfection in the development of the arisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to be. Okay, now according to the sutta, when one is developing mindfulness, and when mindfulness develops strength so that it becomes an enlightenment factor, then one is aware and one knows that the factor of enlightenment is present in oneself. But when the mind is straying, wandering, lost in thoughts. Then it goes on from one thought to another. And so at that time, one doesn't know that mindfulness is absent. But then there comes a moment, suddenly when one recognizes that the mind is wandering, the mind is straying. Then one realizes that up to that moment, the factor of mindfulness has been absent. But just by making that recognition, by realizing that mindfulness has been absent, that is itself a moment of mindfulness. And that moment of mindfulness by which one recognizes that mindfulness has been absent that has the potentiality to set off a new current of mental processes in which mindfulness will be present. So every time the mind wanders and strays, when one makes a note of it, that noting is itself a moment of mindfulness and that mindfulness through which one recognizes that the mind is wandering that will lend its power to the mental continuum to ensure that mindfulness will be gathering strength in the future. It's somewhat like an athlete who wants to train to enter the Olympics when he, say he's going to become a track runner, a runner in track meets, when he begins his training, then he's not very good at running. Even though he practices a lot, but whenever he times himself, he's far from adequate, from reaching an adequate level of speed to enter the Olympics. But if he practices every day and trains very, very thoroughly, gradually by practicing that way, then he will develop such speed in his running that he's able to maybe to qualify for the Olympics, even to win a medal. And it's not through the practicing that he does the day before he enters the Olympics, that enables him to win the medal. Not that practice alone, but it's gradually, it's rather, it's all of the practice that he's gradually done throughout the days, weeks, months, and years that has enabled him to pick up that speed by which he can win the medal in the end. And so it's the same way with mindfulness by noting every time the mind is wandering and straying, that noting is a moment of mindfulness which will form a condition for the building up of mindfulness later on. (coughs) And now the Buddha says that the monk also knows how the arising of the non-arisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to be, and how perfection in the development of the arisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to be. And the commentaries give explanations of various factors which are especially helpful for arousing the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and for bringing it gradually to perfection. In a sense, since mindfulness is the first of the seven factors of enlightenment There is no mental factor which is simpler and more basic than mindfulness, which serves as a foundation of mindfulness. But one can say that the mindfulness that occurs at earlier stages of practice becomes the basis or foundation for transforming mindfulness into an enlightenment factor just in the example that i use the athlete training in the early stages one can say that his training when he's in his early period of training that it's the that he's running the speed of an olympic champion but that early phase of training becomes the basis or foundation for gathering speed, which at a later time will become the speed that enables him to win the gold medal. And so the early stages of mindfulness are the basis for turning mindfulness into an enlightenment factor and for bringing that enlightenment factor to fullness, to perfection. But the commentaries mention certain other things which assist or aid the maturation of the factor of enlightenment. One thing that they mention, and that is doing things in the course of daily life with mindfulness and clear comprehension If one thinks that the time for developing mindfulness is only when one is sitting in meditation and that at other times one just can let the mind wander and stray wherever it wants to, then when one sits in meditation then it will be very difficult to arouse mindfulness. But if one tries going about one's day-to-day work, mindfully, with clear comprehension, understanding what one is doing, why one is doing it, attending to the different activities while one is engaged in a particular project. Then the mindfulness and clear comprehension that accompany one's day-to-day activities will become, will reinforce the factor of mindfulness within the mind so that when one sits to do the meditation then the mindfulness will have greater strength and will be able to persist to persist without being overrun by mental distractions. Also, the commentaries mention that one should try to avoid contact with people with confused minds and one should associate with other people who are intent on developing mindfulness. And one should have a strong resolution or inclination of the mind towards developing mindfulness. even if one finds it difficult to arouse mindfulness, but if one has that resolution and inclination in the mind, that inclination itself becomes a contributing cause to developing stronger mindfulness. Okay now, as mindfulness becomes well established in the mind it forms the basis or foundation for the arising and functioning of the next factor of enlightenment. This is called the enlightenment factor of the investigation of phenomena. In Pali, it's called dhamma Vichya sambho An investigation of phenomena is actually a synonym for wisdom or insight. This is not the kind of investigation like looking for gems in a field where maybe you will find them, maybe you won't. But this is the investigation by which one looks at the phenomena that are presenting themselves to the mind in order to try to seek out and to perceive what are their distinguishing qualities. One wants to see their individual or particular qualities and then branching further, one wants to investigate and perceive What are their general or universal qualities? Okay, through mindfulness, one is directing attention to whatever phenomena present themselves. It might be the breath, the sensation of the breath, the rise and fall of the abdomen, Feelings, whatever feelings arise, one is attending to. If the mind is straying, one is attending to the stray thoughts. Sometimes different states of mind arise, one is noting those states of mind. And so as one goes on noting these states, that is the application of mindfulness to them. And when mindfulness is able to proceed with a great deal of strength and power, then one starts to discern the particular qualities of these phenomena that are being present. For example, as one is attending to, say, the breathing, one is attending in, out, in, out. One will notice that the breath will be occurring in different stages or steps, instead of all coming in on one stream, that it's coming in in discontinuous steps. One will notice certain sensations in the act of breathing. The feeling of the air coming in, which one can identify as the air element. One will notice the solidity of the body, and one will be able to identify that solidity of the body as the earth element. The impact of the air as it comes in, that's the air element and one will notice sometimes degrees of heat or coolness, and one can identify that as the heat element. And so one is able to investigate this act of breathing in terms of the four great elements. If one is attending to the rise and fall of the abdomen, one has the feeling of the solidity of the abdomen, that one will recognize as being, again, the manifestation of the earth element. There is a certain pressure, rising and falling sensation, that is the working of the air element. Sometimes there will be in the body sensations of heat or coolness, one recognizes that as the heat element. If one is attending to feelings, then one will recognize, as one is attending to them with mindfulness, one will recognize this is painful feeling. This is pleasant feeling. This is a neutral feeling. And so one is, in that case, investigating the feeling aggregate. As one is attending to the different states of mind, sometimes there will be states of mind with desire. One attends to that mind with desire. When the mind is without desire, one recognizes mind without desire. If it's Sense desire, one recognizes that there's sense desire. Ill will, one recognizes that there's a mind with ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry. And so one is perceiving these different phenomena and recognizing them as different states of mind, different feelings, different aspects of the aggregate of feelings, different states of mind that is different aspects of the aggregate of consciousness, (coughs) different mental factors, different aspects of the aggregate of mental formations. And so now one is investigating these phenomena and perceiving their distinctive characteristics. One is starting to pinpoint and isolate and discriminate the different phenomena that present themselves through the process of developing mindfulness. And this is the functioning of the enlightenment factor of investigation of phenomena. First, it is investigating in terms of these individual characteristics. These individual qualities of the phenomena. But then as one goes on with this investigation, labeling the precise phenomena that are arising, certain general characteristics of all of these phenomena become evident. What becomes evident first is that whatever phenomena one notes doesn't last forever. In fact, as one's noting becomes very precise, one sees that it does not last really for two consecutive moments, but one sees that this phenomena that's being observed is just arising and passing away. Sometimes it passes away and then the same type of phenomena arises in sequence. For example, if there is a painful feeling and one is noting that painful feeling in the legs or in the back, one will see just one pain arising, passing. One pain arising and passing. Just like little point units of pain strung out like beads on a string, each one arising and passing away. Sometimes the phenomena itself will change. There might be a pain, then that pain will break off, then there will be a feeling of pleasure. Sometimes there'll be a state of restlessness continuing for some time. The restlessness breaks off, and there'll be a period of concentration. Sometimes there'll be a state of worry. Then the worry passes, and there's a state of tranquility. And so whatever arises is seen to pass away. And so then one sees the general characteristic that all of these phenomena have, namely that they are all impermanent. And then from there, one can go on to the other characteristics, that they're all undependable, that is, dukkha, not able to provide any kind of lasting happiness, and also that they are not oneself, since whatever it is that one usually identifies with Simply by turning it into an object of observation, then it becomes just as remote from us as this glass of water will be from myself. If I'm immersed in a state of desire, longing, then I'm completely identified with that desire. And it's me. I take it to be myself. But if I can just turn that desire into a mental object and watch it, just something arising, present to the mind, arising and passing, then it's not me. (laughs) And so with any type of mental state, any type of feeling, any type of state of mind, all of them can be turned into objects And so, by reason of that process of objectification, then we see that all these phenomena are not myself. So in that way, the three characteristics become evident. Okay, so that is the enlightenment factor of investigation of phenomena. I mean, that carries what the explanation I've just given carries it all the way through to the deepest levels. But at the outset, when there is this base of mindfulness, dhamma is just the investigation in order to see what phenomena are present what is the nature of this phenomena that's presenting itself to the mind it's sort of inquiry launching an inquiry and then making an evaluation or making a identification of the object through discerning what is its particular quality is it Material, is it mental? If it's material, what is it? Is it earth element, hardness or softness? Is it wet or dryness, the water element? Is it hot or cool, the heat element? Is it heavy pressure or light pressure? the arrow is it a feeling what kind of feeling is it is it a state of mind what kind of mind? state of mind is it is it a one of the hindrances one of the and so on Okay, then coming to the text now, the Buddha says, when the enlightenment factor of the investigation of mental objects is present, so here mental objects is not such a good rendering of Dhamma, because it implies that the object must always be mental. but I understand Dhamma and also according to the explanations of the text, Dhamma includes everything, whether it's mental or physical. It includes all Nama Rupa Dhammas. So let's say when the enlightenment factor of the investigation of phenomena is present, the monk knows the enlightenment factor of the investigation of phenomena is in me. When the enlightenment factor of the investigation of, men th- of phenomena is absent, he knows the enlightenment factor of the investigation of phenomena is not in me, that it's absent in me. And of course when he notes that the <coughs> Way for investigation to arise. Then he knows how the arising of the non-arisen enlightenment factor of the investigation of phenomena comes to be, and how the you can say simply how the arisen enlightenment factor of investigation of phenomena comes to be comes to reach perfection through development commentaries mention certain causes for the arising of the unarisen enlightenment factor of investigation. First, what's mentioned by the Buddha himself in the suttas as causes for the arising of the investigation of states, enlightenment factor, he mentions mindfulness as a basis or foundation, and also wise attention or careful attention to things. Then the commentaries (coughs) add some other practical advice that leads to the arising of this enlightenment factor. First, they mention inquiring about the teachings, that is investigating the teachings, In order to know what one has to discern with wisdom, one should have some acquaintance with the fundamental teachings of the Buddha. The Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, the Five Aggregates, the Twelve Sense Bases, the Six Inner and Outer Sense Bases, dependent arising and so on. So this investigation and inquiry into the conceptual teaching of the Buddha this will give some strengthening of the seed of wisdom in the mind which will enable wisdom to function more effectively when one is investigating phenomena in the practice of Satipatthana. Then the commentaries give some further very practical advice. They say what is helpful to the arising of true wisdom or true correct investigation is keeping the basis clean. By basis they mean one's living quarters and one's clothes and one's body. That if somebody is living in a very dirty, sloppy room and trying to meditate, but there's dust gathered every place and cobwebs and all the objects in the room are not put away, the room is very disheveled, and he doesn't shave or wash his clothing, then, because everything outside is dirty (laughs) and disorderly, then it's very unlikely that he's going to have a well-ordered mind (laughs) which is going to penetrate very clearly, cleanly, and precisely into the true nature of things. Rather, the mind will also tend to be Very sloppy and disheveled and disorderly. And so, in fact, they give a very good analogy in the commentaries that it's somewhat like having a kerosene lamp. If one wants to get a bright light out of the kerosene lamp, but the kerosene oil is mixed with many impure substances and the wick has not been clipped and it's so that it has a lot of soot at the edge of the wick and the chimney of the lamp has not been cleaned so it has a lot of you know sediments of this dust on it and so one can't expect to get a bright light out of the kerosene lamp But if one has clean kerosene oil, and one clips the wick, so that one has a fresh wick, and one cleans the glass chimney, then one can get a bright light out (coughs) of it. And the commentaries mentioned for the development of wisdom also keeping the spiritual faculties balanced, especially not to be, for example, too energetic, too enthusiastic, in which case one will overshoot the mark, one will put too much energy into the practice and not enough calmness in order to reach that balance needed for wisdom to arise. On the other hand, if one is too laid back too settled then there won't be enough energy for wisdom to arrive. So one has to strike some happy balance between energy and tranquility and some balance between one's let's say one's faith and confidence and one's understanding. These mental faculties have to be kept in a stable relationship to each other. Otherwise, if one gets the upper hand then it's not possible for wisdom to emerge. Then the commentaries mention also that one should avoid the company of foolish people who are always trying to drag one into foolish activities. And one should keep company with wise people who will encourage one in the study and investigation of the Dhamma so that wisdom can arise. Then the last factor they mentioned is having the inclination or resolution towards wisdom, towards understanding the Dhamma. Even if one's mind is just through its previous background, not so sharply trained as to penetrate with insight into the Dhamma, but if one has a strong desire and inclination to develop wisdom, that inclination will become a seed which if it's properly nurtured will eventually blossom into insight and wisdom. Okay, maybe (laughs) I will stop here at this point and then continue next week. I should say that I gave out these photocopied sheets on the, that's a detailed analysis of the Four Noble Truths. I actually thought that we would finish the Seven Factors of Enlightenment <laughs> this evening. <laughs> but these are to be kept for when we come to the section on the Four Noble Truths. The pages that I gave out contain the section on the Four Noble Truths, from the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, the greater discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. So when you put them into this wheel booklet, then it transforms, miraculously transforms this wheel booklet from the middle-sized Satipatthana Sutta into the greater Satipatthana Sutta. (laughs) So by explaining those sections and in the series of talks, then we cover the greater discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. Okay, are there any questions on any of the material covered today? Okay, then if there aren't any questions then we will continue again next